Hello all and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, your weekly look at the IT news of the week. I'm your host, Rich Straffolino, editor with Gestalt IT, and joining me from across cyberspace, across this great land of ours, I mean, not that far across, but let's not get into semantics, is of course, the one, the only, Ken Nalbone. Ken, thanks so much for being here. My pleasure, Rich. And, you know, any distance seems far now that we've got snow here in the Midwest and you don't want to drive on these roads. It's true. I had to literally chip off ice uh, from windows on my CRV this morning. So that was a treat. All right. So uh, another uh, frozen gloom that uh, is overtaking most of the country is, of course, the government shutdown. Uh, And the Internet is not exempt from feeling the pain of the current U.S. uh, partial shutdown, I should say. Uh, Not everything is shut down. But Netcraft reports that since the shutdown began, over 80 TLS certificates used by government websites have expired, including sites from NASA, the U.S. Department of Justice, ouch, and the U.S. Court of Appeals. Ironically, this serves as a check on which sites implemented proper security procedures, as sites with HTTP strict transport security policies are completely inaccessible, while ones without policies can be visited even though they lack proper encryption. Uh, This is what happens, I guess, when you furlough your IT and security staff. I should point out that even though it may seem like a good thing that you can access those sites without, you know, proper encryption, Uh, You should not log in and do anything secure on those sites because that is then all in the clear, theoretically, um, and is not the safest thing to do. Um, This has major implications. You know, if you can't file um, things in a court of appeals, um, if things like Pacer or something like that, these are major systems that law firms across the country rely on. Uh, if if those are down, th- those are major problems. Are we just going to see more and more issues like this crop up if this if this goes down? I mean, can you imagine, Ken, let me just frame this another way. Can you imagine another organization with, you know, a million members, uh, all of a sudden just everyone stops working, IT stops working on, you know, on a, on a massive Fortune 500 company, what the implications would be? No, I can't. And it definitely brings up uh, tons of questions in my mind. And, you know, and my heart goes out to these IT workers in the government. I, I think they probably wanted to avoid something like this from happening. Who among us hasn't dealt with a certificate ex- expiration issue in their career? You know, despite putting calendar reminders and automated notifications out there, something happens. You you miss something. You're scrambling to renew it as quickly as possible. Some organizations, you know, in the private sector, at least have been able to avoid this recently by implementing auto renew services like Let's Encrypt. But the U.S. government government obviously has not. Um, You could probably make an argument for or against doing it. But the fact remains that while this is first first in what is likely to be a string of security lapses during the government shutdown and um, probably you know, going to have notable impacts. I will say one thing or correct you on one thing, Rich, that these websites that continue to use expired certificates um, and are continue to be accessible, you know, data will still be encrypted. But now that you don't have a valid verified certificate encrypting it anymore, you don't know who really is controlling that key anymore. So, you know, yeah, it's being encrypted, but how do you know it's not somebody else reading that besides the U.S. government uh, once it arrives at its destination? Yeah, that, so that's that, still a scary thought, which is why HSTS is important. And the uh, websites implementing correct security are, rightfully so, inaccessible until this is resolved. Yeah, and thanks for, for clarifying that. Uh, I didn't, yeah, didn't want to misstate that everything's just going out there. Um, the, the other thing that this brings up is, you know, this might be a small sign, a very visible sign of a lot of things that are, are not getting taken care of, right? I mean, if, if nothing else, mm-hmm. at, in the worst, like the best case scenario is 
IT staff comes back whenever the shutdown is resolved. And there's just a lot of work to get caught up on, a lot of certificates to renew, whatever. Um, so like you're just super busy and then things maybe fall through the cracks there. But what this says to me is that yeah, DOD and really sensitive stuff. I'm sure their IT staffs are, are they, you know, they were not part of the partial government shutdown. That still leaves a ton of sensitive information. Patches aren't being applied, I imagine, mm -hmm. in any of these situations. And any kind of, uh, uh, you know, state-sponsored hacking or advanced persistent threats, they're not taking any time off. And so they're exactly. sure probing all of these systems and seeing what's not getting updated when any zero-day exploits, no matter how minor, are coming out. And, uh, you know... Uh, it, it it just seems like it's going to snowball from here. We'll, we'll be and hearing about these are, stories for months. I think there are plenty of uh, agencies within the U.S. government that are probably deemed non-essential, that don't have working IT staff, that are probably a treasure trove of U.S. government taxpayer inf personal information or could be an attack vector for some other kind of sensitive system. So, yeah, it's it's a major issue, and hopefully we don't see it last too long. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, one thing that is working with the government is the U.S. Commerce Department and the Wall Street Journal reports that the Commerce Department started in uh, uh, stated in a June letter that it won't renew the export license for Huawei's Silicon Valley R&D subsidiary FutureWay Technologies. I enjoy that Huawei is incredibly unclever when it comes to naming their R&D subsidiaries. While not all R&D requires an export license, FutureWay would be specifically barred from sending telecommunications and high-speed data transfer technology back to China, citing national security concerns. Ken, is this just a, a little bit more tit-for-tat part of this, you know, technological cold war uh, that the U.S. has going on with China, or... Does this possibly, you know, is this going to have major implications for Huawei down the line? It seems like this is just, we just want to mess with you and make things as difficult as possible with you. I'll tell you what, I mean, the war continues by the U.S. on Huawei in particular. They really seem to have them in their cross sites lately. What I didn't realize and what when I kind of read this article that we linked to uh, before the, we started the podcast was that some telecom sales have been blocked uh, from Huawei since 2012 when there was a congressional report labeling them a national security threat. Now, I thought this was kind of more of a trade war type of thing when I heard about it lately. But the further I look into it, the, the more it looks like, uh, you know, if the U.S. doesn't believe Huawei is a national security threat, they sure as heck are making it as convincing an argument as possible. So, what can Huawei do to stem the tide? I don't know. I don't know if they even really care. Uh, really, you and, know, and they, they want to do their thing. They're China. They, they have their own ideas uh, about how you know go, uh, technology exports should happen, whether or not it violates some kind of U.S. law about copyright and export. So what? I mean, you, there are U.S. employees at this company, so they're probably going to you know pay close attention so that they don't risk you know some kind of repercussions personally. But Huawei is a company; um, they may not care. I don't know. Yeah, and it is interesting, you know, citing that, that this isn't just a recent development with, you know, a current administration. I mean, we talked about this a little bit on our, we actually extensively kind of on our year in review uh, episode of the Gestalt IT Rundown. And uh, Stephen Foskett kind of pointed out that this is largely, this isn't a technological issue. It will have implications for large organizations and for ISPs, especially rural ISPs in the U.S. that may have to, you know, completely divest of any Huawei infrastructure that they have if this keeps escalating as it as it seems like it is. Um, but that be it, it is a political issue uh, in, in a lot of ways, but it's one that kind of has bipartisan support and one of the few things in this country. It's, it's spanned multiple administrations and has been identified, you know, as, as ostensibly a national security threat. Um, mm -hmm. You know, interesting to see uh, how this will uh, play out, what the next chapter of this will be. I still maintain that this this is just a part of a larger campaign to 
prove to, I guess, U.S. allies, U.S. Uh, people that are interested in, you know, are doing business with Huawei, countries that are doing business with Huawei, but our allies or partners with the U.S., that we're going to poison this well as much as we possibly can to try and dissuade, you know, uh, we've already seen it have pretty pervasive effects with 5G rollout in terms mm-hmm. of infrastructure uh, amongst uh, U.S. allies. So um, I, I think we'll, we'll continue to see a little more tit for tatty uh, kind of uh, moves like this in the future. One thing we'll also see more of in the future, Intel doing neural networking chips at CES. Intel showed off their Nirvana with a spelled with an E, though. It's very weird, not like the band or like the state of mind, whatever. Uh, the Nirvana neural network processor developed in partnership with Facebook. It's built on a 10 nanometer process. That's kind of a magical process for Intel and features ice-like cores for neural network acceleration and uses a GPU-like form factor. So basically a PCI card or PCIe mm-hmm. card. PCI card yeah. would be very slow. Uh, optimized for image recognition, the chip features software-defined on-chip memory management rather than a standard cache hierarchy. So instead of seeing like L2, L3, L1 cache, it's just all kind of one big block and software kind of splits that up, which I thought was kind of interesting. I hadn't, I hadn't seen that in a chip design before. And it's designed to scale across multiple chips thanks to a fixed point multiplication and additions and high-speed off-chip interconnects. The first part, I kind of don't know what that is, but it sounded cool. Uh, Intel claims it will offer 10 times the performance of competitive GPUs for AI inference training. And this is kind of what I was waiting for. This isn't quite the ASIC approach that I know is, is or the FPGA approach, excuse me, that's kind of coming down the pipe, I feel like, uh, from companies like Xilinx and that kind of stuff. But, you know, GPUs have kind of had this machine learning AI market all to themselves because they have very specific advantages through there, um, but they really aren't designed for that. And I feel like there's a there's a huge market. Intel is are actually already very competitive uh, in kind of this AI inference training chip market that's only going to grow as time goes on. Um, you know, they're, they're working with Facebook to create something. That they're going to be obviously a huge customer for these kind of chips. Other kind of mm-hmm. hyperscaler organizations that have to do massive image recognition. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we see Google maybe trying to do something on their own or something like that. But this is a huge market. Obviously, Intel needs to sell chips. It would be nice if they could do them at 10 nanometers at some point. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, I think, you know, kind of the secrets out with, uh, with GPUs and having this domain kind of all to their own. And this is kind of uh, the reality of that. And we're going to see more and more announcements, I think, like this coming forward. I agree. And I think it was right for Intel to basically make a play in the AI and, and neural network market. It's, it's about time. It's clearly, you know, the next enterprise. And oh, goody, they're partnering with Facebook, which means Facebook is going to get more power and ability to harvest my personal data for their own means, whatever they may be. But I, I'm sure they're twirling their mustaches in the background right now. Uh, Hey, ever ever seen Mark Zuckerberg with a mustache? You may soon. Um, I won't pretend to know enough about chip design to know if everything they're doing sounds good or bad or just like a bunch of marketing fluff. But I will say at least that they're doing something which is good because you can't really you, you need to be in the AR market if you're a, a chip designer today. Uh, you know, we saw a lot uh, recently from other companies primarily making GPUs and just releasing a specific hardware layout that included their GPUs, among other things. Uh, meant for these purposes. And now that we're seeing purpose-built chips, we'll probably see this as a business model kind of accelerate. Yeah. And we're, we're already seeing, well, what's really interesting to me was with all of the Turing uh, architecture stuff from NVIDIA, I think kind of a realization of this as well, moving away from just a, a general GPU where it's, you know, it's monolithic. It just has a bunch of, um, you know, general purpose shaders or it, that's not the right term, but just general purpose 
graphics compute units and now they're moving into here's our specific ray tracing part of the chip here's our specific you know ml part of the chip and and really kind of going away from a general general purpose gpu if that makes any sense uh and and already moving into that kind of specialization realizing that that's where the future is for them as well um so it'll be you know it'll it'll be interesting to see who has uh, obviously, both NVIDIA and Intel have huge histories in chip design, amazing resources, you know, amazing engineering. Um, whether that, you know, kind of this big monolithic uh, set is going to be how it goes or if there's more of a, a cheaper, smaller scale out. It's interesting, though, that this is meant to be used in like giant blocks of, you know, one big virtual uh, Nirvana chip made up of a bunch of small cards and stuff like that. That seems to that seems to jive with what a company like Facebook or any other kind of hyperscaler um, or web scale companies want to do, you know, just throw a bunch of cards into some really cheap commodity hardware. And all of a sudden you have a ton of AI inferencing capability. Right. Exactly. I think that's clearly what it's meant for is a hyperscaler model. Yeah. Well, on the other end of the market on extremely low power chips, uh, I have a question for you. Ken, have you ever yes. opened the Wi-Fi settings on your phone and wondered how can I harness the power of all these ambient radio frequencies? I've more wondered what the heck are these ambient radio frequencies doing to my brain, <laughs> but I have wondered about them. Well, if you have, you should check out the new startup, uh, Williot. I think it's how it's W-I-L-I-O-T. Your guess is as good as mine. There yeah, we go. Williot sure. we'll go with. Uh, the startup sure. just finished a $30 million funding round to develop chips that run on ambient nanowatts of electromagnetic energy from cellular, Wi-Fi, and Bluetooth networks, basically eliminating the, I mean, ideally eliminating the need for batteries and wired power just running on kind of the power that's in the air, as it were. Today, the chips can measure temperature, location, air pressure, and can transmit data back to the cloud. Um, I'm assuming it doesn't have a cellular modem. I'm not sure exactly how they're doing that, whether it's a, like maybe a Bluetooth connection or something like that. Uh, right mm -hmm. now, they're focusing on manufacturing at scale. They basically are, have hand-built chips, essentially, uh, not anything that's uh, being manufactured in kind of industrial scale. But uh, the long-term goal, and with this funding round, that what they want to do is be cost-competitive with RFID tags. That's a big ask, I feel like. RFID is super, super cheap. But if you can do more sophisticated things, I wrote up a little wrote up on this on Gestalt IT, and I think this mm -hmm. could have, you know, the, right now the the article that I was reading about this uh, focused that they were, oh, we want to be in the garment industry, right? We're going to have tags in garments and it can it can help with supply chain. You know, people can scan these or have them send information as they travel and then, you know, maybe have some consumer information on there as well once they're actually sold. But what I think is way more interesting is you have a company, I'm thinking of a product like um, uh, Pessler's PRTG, I believe it's called where mm -hmm. they, they have a big um, dashboard where you can have tons of sensors in a data center, anything from fan speed to CPU cycles to, to all sorts of weird environmental stuff that they can pull together and kind of aggregate and make it really interesting. Now imagine that, or a solution like that, using these all these sensors that don't need to have any external power you just slap on anywhere and they're being powered by the Wi-Fi that's running through your entire building anyway. I think that has some interesting possibilities for the enterprise. And I think you hit the nail on the head there. The difference being that, you know, the traditional RFID or NFC, uh, you know, chips and tags, they're relatively static. You know, you can typically read some information off of them and occasionally write to them. But if it's a sensor where the data is constantly changing, you know, it needs to be powered and regularly updated. It's not going to be need to be a high amount of power, but just the trickle amount of power that it can gather off the radio waves in the air, I suppose, makes it more useful and kind of the implications and use cases just expand upon that. Probably things we haven't even thought of yet, but sensors are, are a good one or, you know, 
who, who knows what, you know, maybe you want to track your kid getting on and off the school bus and make sure they're going to the right place. And all of a sudden their location is updated when they pass through the, uh, the, the doorway in the school hall or something, or maybe that's too much of a, uh, nanny cam <laughs> spy situation, but you know, who, who's, who knows how far you can take it, but I, I kind of see the use use cases and we'll see if the, you know, they're, basically able to manufacture them cheaply enough at scale to make them a competitive and compelling alternative to other chips that don't act the same way, but can do a lot of the same things already do. Yeah. And I was, I was comparing it uh, in my article to something I saw, I think Cisco was, was showing it off. It was a, Low-Rawan or whatever, however, Low-Rawan or whatever, which is super low-power WAN that you can put a battery in it lasts for 10 years. And it does really, excuse me, <coughs> it does really low power, um, you know, Wi-Fi, you know, kind of, it's meant for, for sensor da- data, right? Where you just are slowly sending kind of consistent sensor data back over the WAN, but you don't need a lot of power. I could see mm-hmm. something similar this way, except lasts as long as you have Wi-Fi around or Bluetooth or something like that. So pretty interesting stuff. Now you just have to make sure you have Wi-Fi or Bluetooth or whatever up everywhere you need to put it. And yeah, then it's going to be how do, how do I yeah how do I bring this uh, wireless power to the edge? It'll be the next uh, it'll be the next thing once this comes out. Mm-hmm. All right, Ken, I'm gonna um, tell you three words here. I want to see how incongruous they seem to you. Apple database open source. Yeah, uh, before basically looking into this, they wouldn't, that wouldn't have made any sense to me at all. Well, if you haven't heard, Apple announced that they were open sourcing Foundation DB record layer. Excuse me, Foundation DB record layer. It's all one word or all one thing, uh, which provides relational database semantics on top of Foundation DB and is the backbone of their CloudKit API framework. Basically, the things that make the back end for iCloud and all their a lot of their services. Uh, the company also published some in-depth technical details of how a uh, record layer is used in CloudKit, including that it runs completely stateless, which is interesting, uh, and allows them to instantly, uh, which also makes me wonder if it's containerized. I haven't dug into the documentation too much there, but allowing uh, instantiating and performing operations very quickly. What made this interesting to me is one, Apple open source and anything, two, providing any technical mm-hmm. detail, really weird, and it makes me think that is this Apple is clearly pivoting into a services company or wants to pivot into a services company long term. They want to. We're seeing hardware sales flatline for their, you know, for or, you know, be remain very high and very profitable, but not growing uh, in the iPhone, iPad, that kind of stuff. In their shift to services, I think they realize that they have to be a little bit more open with some of their documentation. Is this a play into that? It should be. If it's not, I think it could be interpreted as that. Um, you know, they released CloudKit a while back uh, because obviously iCloud adoption has not picked up by and large, mostly because it was only available on Apple devices before now. But, you know, I had not heard of CloudKit uh, before very recently. I kind of had to research it to understand what the heck they were talking about. And of course, one of the marquee uh, products they had on there is the password manager. Many of us know and love one password. Uh, apparently, they're using CloudKit and, and the database on the back end, Foundation DB, to store the encrypted password data that you're sharing between your devices. And of course it's available on your Mac or your iPhone, but it's also available on your Android phone or your windows or Linux PC, which means all of a sudden you can open up iCloud to use cases outside of Apple's own ecosystem, the hardware ecosystem. That's as you mentioned, flatlining. So yes, I think that's the play. It's to basically make this a more approachable um, service to, to expand outside what users they already have. Um, 
it's interesting that they open sourced it because, you know, what's to stop somebody from forking it and basically running this database on a service other than iCloud and making it available and making money that way? I guess not much, but I think it's a gamble worth taking because how much energy do independent developers have to basically fork another open source product yet again. Yeah. And there's more money, I guess, to be made working with Apple than trying to make them mad too. Um, True. Yeah. So I, but an inter- a really interesting move by Apple. I wonder if we'll see further moves like this as they continue kind of down this road. And to be clear, again, I use the term flatlining. I meant like the growth chart was like becoming flat, not like as in the heartbeat yes. thing is dying. Um, there, 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 are, there are still sales. Uh, and they're still very high, but they're not <laughs> growing the same way they were ridiculously before. Ridiculously profitable company. <laughs> Let's be mm-hmm. clear. Oh, we disappointed analysts by not having even higher profits than our record profits last quarter. That we only made $85 billion. Poor Apple. Well, Ken, I, I don't want to blow your mind, but we have another open source database story. <laughs> be still my heart. This is making me very excited. I'm sure you've heard of this and maybe some of our listeners, but if you haven't, uh, Document DB, Amazon's new managed database service. It's designed to be compatible with MongoDB 3.6 via an implementation of the API that emulates the responses that a MongoDB uh, client expects from a MongoDB server. That's a quote. That's why it's a little long and clunky. Uh, the compatibility and implementation are important for the MongoDB SSPL license, which requires all managed MongoDB services after after version 3.6 to make their code available to allow the service to be run as an open source project. So basically, Amazon saying, um, we want to do this, but we don't want to open source anything. So, you know, screw off MongoDB. Uh, do you think now, I'm, I'm Ken, obviously, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with this. Do you think that this is going to be a trend if we see open source projects kind of trying to follow this this model by MongoDB of saying, hey, you know, we're open source. We we don't want these managed services to be all closed off. We want them to kind mm-hmm. of maintain the, that same open spirit. If we see other projects trying to force the hand of big companies, is are we going to see this as a common response? We're probably going to see it out of Amazon, at least. You know, the Amazon apparently has their war on open source, as people have put it. And really, the the reason that Mongo changed their license a few months back was because they want to maintain that you must contribute back to open source if you use it uh, for, for whatever purposes. And they were probably sing- signaling out Amazon in particular, who's well known for basically adopting somebody else's model of business and creating something out of open source products and then basically cannibalizing that market. And Amazon is basically calling their bluff now. They're saying, OK, fine, we'll take what open source we can from before your new license was available, create our own service out of it, and we'll just, you know, take your customers and there you go. Um, <laughs> it's a, it's, it's a interesting. Very, yeah, I mean, you, you want to talk about the new Microsoft. <laughs> Basically, yes. You know, it's it. people are in love with Amazon that use it to make their lives more uh, more simple, you know, whether it's their retail customers or the developers who just love not having to worry about infrastructure anymore. But not many people are paying very close attention to the long-term implications of basically allowing Amazon to control their entire lives. And now that includes apparently what software they're using and that it's no longer going to be open source necessarily. In some cases, it's going to be Amazon's own product. And who knows what that means for the future of uh, open source by and large. Um, it's it, it's kind of scary to think about because they are the dominant player right now in cloud computing. And it, you know all the developers who have their GitHub repositories that they're contributing code to regularly aren't seeing Amazon do the same and like, and what's going to, what's that feature going to mean then for all those open source communities that have been thriving for the past 20 years? Well, and then the the question becomes, you know, is Amazon set to dominate the public cloud so much that even if another service comes along where 
you know, open source is their market differentiator, basically, you know. Um, like Microsoft, for example, ooh, believe it or hey. not. Uh, or, uh, you know, maybe a newly acquired company uh, like uh, Red Hat could offer to another behemoth company or something like that. Um, but if, Am you know, it could be, it could literally be another situation like Microsoft, where even if that is a differentiator, there's so much momentum and so much mass adoption of the standard, whether it be, you know, Windows office, slash Office or now AWS, that it doesn't matter because, no you know, th there's such a disadvantage to not use it. Um, that it becomes unviable. That I I hope we don't hit that point. I think it's still a competitive enough landscape, even though Amazon is the it is nine hundred pound gorilla in the room, and it and it is much more open, right? Uh, long term, I guess it 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 doesn't feel as locked down, but it's a little scary. It is. And I mean, we've seen Amazon is not really slowing down in their pace of releasing new features and trying to gain customer adoption. So it's early, but Amazon is doing anything but slowing down. They're stepping on the gas, trying to maintain and accelerate their position in the front of the pack. So they haven't, I don't think they've won it yet, but they're so far ahead that anybody else is, uh, that's competitive really has to work hard to keep up and close that gap that, just leave my open source alone. I, I know. All right. And finally, speaking of Amazon, I had these ordered very well. Uh, not to yes. call up my segues. Too what I want to brag. Uh, Amazon recently confirmed they had acquired TSO Logic late last year. TSO offers a service that helps customers understand what running their current workloads in the cloud will actually cost as opposed to magic fairy dust that every public cloud provider promises, using statistical modeling to project compute patterns across OS instances, aka its proprietary. Cloud pricing remains a major boogeyman for a lot of organizations. Uh, do you think this is a this is going to be a key component to help maybe demystify this for organizations a little hesitant, or or at least are, are you know, for cost-conscious organizations that want to migrate to the cloud? You know, could this be a major differentiator? We ran a series on uh, Gestalt IT kind of digging into the vast conundrum that is understanding cloud pricing, you know, when it comes to, you know, instances, storage, what, you know, what networking you're going to be using. It can be very confusing. I could see this being a major differentiator. Yeah, uh, maybe. And I'll tell you why I say maybe, because, you know, speaking of Amazon, basically swallowing up a business model and owning the market for it, you know, now they're going to get into the costing market for cloud services, specifically their own. But, if you go to any you know AWS summit or reInvent, you'll see a large portion of the exhibit space taken up by these platforms that help you identify and control costs in cloud spending. But who do you trust to tell you how much <laughs> things are going to cost and how you can save money on Amazon? Do you trust Amazon to do that? I don't know. You know, maybe you'd want to compare it to one of those other platforms that is not owned by the company that you're paying to use that service. So. It'll be interesting to see how it shakes out. I, I bet there's a lot of people who have already adopted one platform or another that are probably pretty happy with it. And they might look at this one from Amazon and it might find some things that they missed with their other platform. But at the same time, they're probably going to think in the back of their mind, is Amazon going to really tell me everything I need to know to save money, to keep giving them from giving them all the money that I possibly can? Well, My bet's no. The, the one thing I will say is, so basically, I believe what TSO's business model was beforehand, though, is they got a kickback if, you know, they did the estimate of what it would cost. They sign up with Amazon and basically through a partnership, you know, they get some kind of commission or bonus based on, you know, what workloads get moved over or something like that. So I already feel like some of these companies are already seen as being a little bit being motivated to move. You know, they're, they're, they have an obvious business interest in seeing people 
you know, move over and, and, and migrate to the cloud. So mm-hmm. I, I think that's that's not the biggest concern. But if, again, you have a thousand other companies, you know, you have infinite competition that's considered more vendor neutral uh, than TSO or whatever the assets from TSO end up being. Yeah, I, I can maybe see that as, okay, we're going to maybe measure once and uh, migrate. Wait, measure twice, migrate once. There we go. Uh, joke totally boffed right there. Okay, well, that just about brings us to the end of the Gestalt IT Rundown. Ken, thank you so much for being here. This was awesome. A pleasure as always. Thank you, Rich. Uh, where can people find more of your fine work if they are so inclined? You can find me on gestaltit.com where I write regularly. You can also find me on social media. I'm at Ken Nalbone on Twitter. I'm also pretty sure the only Ken Nalbone on LinkedIn. So find me in either of those places. Awesome. And you can find more of my stuff from Gestalt IT as well. Like I said, I just published a little bit about uh, that kind of ambient uh, uh, chip startup, uh, which a uh, name which is very difficult to Williot, uh, which is very weird to say. Uh, so you can check that out there. You can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Anthropology, MR Anthropology. And if you want to check it out, uh, we just finished up a networking field day exclusive with Cisco over at techfieldday.com. I believe we'll have the videos up for those uh, relatively soon. So you want to check back there and see all those videos there. And then uh, we have. All sorts of events. We have a full-on uh, networking field day, I believe, coming up. Uh, so that should be fun as well. So check that out, techfieldday.com, for all sorts of good stuff there as well. We'll be back next Wednesday, 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time, for all of the IT news of the week. Until then, remember, everyone, have a super sparkly day. Super sparkly day.